Hello out there, everyone. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you today? I'm good, Dave. The sun's out. Guns out? Literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, I, you don't want to always think that you're, you know, a typical fan, but you got a little spring in your step today, right? I had, I had spring in my step. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. after all, oh, isn't tomorrow the first day of spring? Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. I guess you're doing dad jokes now. Yeah, baby. Like, it's right yeah. there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Gotta love it. Um, Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, yeah, we are, okay. we, are, uh, we are, of course, uh, recording on uh, Friday, March 19th. And uh, last night, UCLA um, broke out of the first four, beating Michigan State in a dramatic overtime victory uh, to advance to the field of 64 to take on BYU tomorrow. And it was, uh, yeah, I, I liked your piece. I read it uh, just a little bit ago. Uh, but it was a, you know, I, this isn't the greatest Michigan State team ever, but what this said about Mick Cronin's program, I think, uh, really can't be understated. Or overstated. Yeah. Can't be overstated. Yeah. Can't, can't be, be overstated. overstated. That's where I was going yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. Ir- irregardless. Yeah, irregardless, <laughs> uh, you know, just literally, it was great. Yeah, not a great Michigan State team, but uh, they did beat some of the best teams in the country. So... It's a very capable team. They're they're kind of a strange team, actually. Um, but Dave, you are now acknowledging that UCLA is in the NCAA tournament. They're officially in now. They've punched their ticket. They're in the big dance. The, there were so many things like what I wrote in that piece. Um, first off, just the overall, the, 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 oh, the bigger picture after so many of those really heartbreaking football games where UCLA outplayed its opponents and kind of just fumbled the ball down, down the stretch and lost a few to then the way the basketball season was ending up at the end with those last four losses that it's just, I mean, UCLA fans are hanging in there. I get it, but that's, that's, that's too much for just about, any group of fans after, you know, without, and the even bigger picture, let's even back up more. UCLA hasn't had a winning football season in five years. Just let that sink in. Uh, that's Tracy. I'm going to take everyone behind the curtain because you promised me just before we started this show that you weren't even going to mention football. Yeah. So I'm just trying to give the context of how cathartic of a win that mm-hmm. was last night that, yeah. Just not only from what it does in like, uh, you know, a signature win for McCrona, but just for UCLA fans, why everyone has little spring in their step today. We we kind of forgot what that spring felt like. Yeah, no. Uh, well, and uh, the, it's a great point about just kind of the last, uh, especially five years, but let's call it 20 um, <laughs> of, of UCLA, uh, you know, men's basketball and football because uh somebody mentioned this on the board last night when somebody in the broadcast thread the request for this very show that we are recording right now um and it's completely valid viewpoint uh which was from the real Nas one where he said i I don't listen to anything that dave dude says because it's all negative and i'm like 
buddy, you think I want to talk crap about the school all the time? <laughs> it sucks. I'm, I, I can't. I can't not call it that it sucks. And so if they, last if they night, only knew, if they only first, if they only knew like my first impression of you when you were just. Ten and two, this, baby. Ten and this two. This cute little guy writing for the Daily Brew and who probably couldn't grow a beard at that point. Who were you were just so positive. You I mean, ten and two, didn't you say undefeated in national championship? Twelve and oh. I thought the two thousand seven UCLA football team that I believe lost forty four to six to Utah in the early going <laughs> of the season, uh, I thought that group was gonna go twelve and oh, baby. I remember. I can still Remember literally talking to you and you and you saying those things yeah. when you were kind yeah, of yeah. drunk out at, so I at guess, football. Uh, but, but 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 the point is, uh, like the thing is, like something like last night, I'm not going to sit there and talk crap about that. That was no. legitimately cool. So that first half. But here's the thing: uh, all games can co- contain multitudes. All people contain multitudes. And the reality is, they didn't play very well in the first half. Mick Cronin, their very coach, talked about their effort not being great in that first half. Like, talking about these things with distinctions about, okay, this is what happened at this point, and this is what happened later on, and it's very cool that they had the mental strength to rebound from not playing well in the first half to playing extremely well in the second half in overtime is a much better story anyway, and it's the truth, not just, like, a positive-based narrative. You know, it's, it's actually, well, that's a... Or at least it's my my impression of what happened. It's what we want in life. We want positive-based narratives. It's just they've been so uh, infrequent since yeah. we've been doing, bro. Uh, so, yeah, we don't want to be negative, guys. I mean, we want to be positive. We have to, like, we can't be cheerleader all the time or any time. We have to be able to tell it like it is. And believe me. That gets to us too. I mean, you know, you you have any idea seriously how much criticism Dave and I get, like in private messages through Twitter. I mean, we, and it's not necessarily that we're being overly negative. We're just we're just the messenger, and it's kind of that fan experience of where you want to take it out on the person who's most immediate, and that that's you and me, Dave. That's us. But it's like. Obviously, our, our jobs in, like, the grand scheme of things, it's very, like, it's unserious, it's minor, we get all that all that stuff. Yeah, but do you understand, yeah. like, in the context of doing that, how much of a chore it was to write about, like, say, the Steve Alford UCLA basketball teams? Like, do you think people realize that? <laughs> Remember like, when we used to do that? Oh, you... you no, you, you have to do, do this, this one. one. No, 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 you, you do this one. You do this one. Please, I have no soul left. Yeah. Please write this one, day. And it's and writing just kind of the same things over and over again because that was the observation every time. Oh yeah, they're playing with low effort, no focus, and uh, <laughs> chucking some stuff up, and they they managed to win this one, but they didn't win that other one. But like that's just what it was basically every game. Um, it's so much more fun to write about this Mick Cronin team. So much more fun to watch this Mick Cronin team, even as flawed as they are. Like even as the apparent deficiencies of this team. Everyone can see them. You know, this is not a team of great athletes, um, not a team of like a ton of skill. And as we talked about at length in the last podcast, uh, not a team with like one singular talent who's just, you know, good at everything. They don't have it. Um, But what they do have, and it like kind of really was exemplified last night, and it's kind of the theme I touched on the most in my um, story about it, was just 
whatever you want to call it, because I wouldn't say they're 100% always focused on defense or 100% always giving, you know, maximum effort on defense, like even to the realistic extent that you might expect that because nobody's giving 100% effort at all times. But even to like, you know, those best impressions of a Ben Howland team that you have, this team isn't trying that hard on defense. I, I think that's an objective truth we can all just deal with, right? Sure, maybe. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, my, I'd say it's really inconsistent. It's um, inconsistent. Uh, yeah. Okay, but my point is that there's something else going on with this team. It's a very much of a refusal to lose, no quit kind of attitude, where when it gets down to a point, they just find ways to claw back. Either it's suddenly their shot selection gets a lot better, or their effort on the offensive glass gets a ton better, or their defensive intensity, and that's really a big part of what it was in the second half of last night, just gets much better. And it's they're never going to be a perfect defensive team with their athletic deficiencies, but the level at which that they can bring it when um, kind of their backs are against the wall is really cool. Um, and I can't remember um, a very recent UCLA team that had that. I wouldn't even say, you know, that Lonzo Ball team was very, very good, but I don't think they had quite that. Um, they were a much better team, um, but I don't think they had quite that same no-quit mentality that this one does. Yeah. And that's, well, that's something that stands out from this group. Yeah, it's and you, you have to give. Uh, I mean, while people want after, you know, UCLA went on that four-game losing streak and everyone was questioning whether, you know, Mick Cronin's coaching ability, I, I, I don't... I, I really don't even think it's arguable at this point that you have to give Mick Cronin a lot of the credit for instilling a mental toughness in his teams. Um, we've been told from when he first got there that it is not easy to to necessarily be in a Mick Cronin program. It's not for everyone. It's boot camp. It is a physical and mental boot camp, and you better be ready. And I, I think there have been some recruits that possibly have shied away maybe from UCLA thinking that's that's probably just a little too tough for me. And, you know, it's a good weeding out process. If, if that's what you think, you, you're not going to make it there. So you where it really manifested last night and and just those four losses, I think, personally toughened them up they've been through so much and it's not even it, it's a it's a matter of experience oh we've done this before <laughs> we've we've experienced this before this is no big deal so i can't even say at what exact point in that game but you could see ucla just the toughness was coming through the mental toughness the focus and michigan state and we, we got to say it because this is this is the narrative we get watching college basketball, being a fan of college basketball. First off, the Big Ten, tough, tough physical conference, you know, East Coast bias towards East Coast basketball, Michigan State on top of it, having a rep of being just a tough team and Tom Izzo's program always being tough. To see them seriously just falter and UCLA really start to just exude toughness throughout that second half, 
was really, really well, yeah. a satisfying thing to watch. Well, you got to understand, uh, UCLA has fought through a crucible. I mean, Michigan State didn't have to play Oregon, Colorado, USC. They didn't have to, you know, deal with those tough Pac-12 refs. Like they, had, they went through the soft Big Ten. They, they, have, yeah. they have no idea the demons that UCLA has slain en route to this first four matchup. And so they just, you know, the, the, the relative levels, but, I mean, it's but, not even in the same conversation. UCLA just, you know, it's it's in a tougher league with tougher they, teams. The Pac-12 is just really soft, and the Big Ten are a bunch of big, badass oh, Midwestern whatever. guys. Yeah, no, but here's the thing. Like, if you're looking at them physically, like, Michigan State was, like, bigger and a little bit more athletic. Um, like, that dude, uh, Bingham, yeah, he was only credited with three blocks. I think I counted twenty-seven. How many did you count? Um, it it got so annoying <laughs> to me. I, I either that or he altered some that he might there were not at have least touched. there were at least two each on Cody Riley and and Mac Etienne on the same possession. Like each yeah. of them got blocked twice in the same possession. I can almost distinctly remember that. Uh, and so he that's had at least two, four. He had two on Etienne in that possession. Yeah, yeah, I that's think. what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, what is it about counting blocks? I see so many more blocks in games and I look at the sad sheet. I go, he had like five blocks and he's got two. Okay, I think they must be, um, must be something with like the ball leaving the hand is only when it gets counted or something. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. But, um, anyway, my point is like for most of that game, you know, I think Michigan state kind of had it. What I, what I think stood out was, um, and this was a little bit, I don't know if it was surprising, but UCLA looked a lot better conditioned by the end. That's um, that too. Michigan yeah. State uh, did not look; they looked completely spent by the end of that game, um, making just absolutely egregious mistakes, um, number of air balls, um, and just looked completely done pressing the whole thing. And I think this is the point: UCLA has gone through. Just four games of absolute hell at the end of games where everything that has that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. Um, that they were, I, I don't know, maybe they were just like, look, we're desensitized to this now. And it allowed them to play calmly. I don't know, but it was... I think it, that's the point with Mick Cronin, too. He's going to put you through hell in his program. Yeah. He is going to toughen you up to where when you get in these situations, it's no big deal. <laughs> and I, I think that... That really, really goes a long way. It goes yeah. so far. We've seen so many soft UCLA teams. I, I mean, I, we could pick apart the Steve Alford era on why there were so many things that pissed us off. Um, but it really was just a perception of a real, like that Lonzo Ball team was very talented, but they were soft. They were not a tough team. There were so many times watching. You just said, God, how how soft are they right there? And that is really hard to watch. That's the one thing about Cronin. If he's going to make mistakes coaching and we can nitpick it, and that's what we do, and that's what we did in the last podcast. But he's, he's building the program to make his players tough. And he's doing it mostly with players he inherited, too. So it's, it's, I think it's a real accomplishment just to be able to 
win that game, given the talent on the team, given the players he's been he he inherited, given he's lost Chris Smith, probably the best player, lost Jalen Hill, played a lot of the season, losing three of his top six players in any given game. To get it, to get him to even be able to play that game, uh, it's just so it. There was I can't even say the moment, but it was just kind of this feeling that overcame you in the second half, saying, "Wow, this this team is just really tough, and Michigan State is faltering mentally and physically." When um, one of the biggest <laughs> one of the biggest moments was actually like kind of embarrassing, but it was Jaime um, going in for the dunk missing it badly then yeah. en- ending up with the carom and just calmly walking out to the corner and hitting that three <laughs> just burying it over a dude and it was like how did that happen um but it was just you know th- that's the kind of thing where uh he didn't hang his head didn't get embarrassed or whatever uh you know because that can happen when you miss a dunk um but just got the ball and then made the shot um you know i, I thought he was going to miss that three because that certainly would have been in my head if I were the kind of person who was in every, in any universe ever able to dunk and I happened to miss it on national television, <laughs> I would have been like, oh, wow, I'm not playing ever again. Uh, but he <laughs> got the ball and then decided to shoot it. Uh, so that was that was cool. Um, but, yeah, there were a lot of moments like that. And I thought, you know, one of the ongoing things throughout that game was almost literally for the first 36 minutes, I would say, every loose ball, every single one bounced exactly wrong um, yeah. against UCLA. And if you noticed, it wasn't really an effort thing. Tiger Campbell was on the floor. Jules Bernard was pursuing the ball. Like, all the time, guys were in the vicinity of the ball, and it just didn't quite end up in their grasp. There were a few moments where they were maybe a little soft on the rebound or didn't position themselves right. But for the most part, the ball was just bouncing wrong the whole game. Um, and those kind of games, like, we've seen them all throughout the, you know, throughout the years— you just don't win those. <laughs> yeah. You just don't win those games. You, you yeah. lose those games. Um, even yeah. if it gets close, you lose those games because everything is just going wrong. Um, to get past that, to get past what I thought, and I'm not a big talking about the officiating uh, guy. Um, I, I generally find it just because everybody's a- coming excuse. at it. Everybody's yeah. coming at it from a subjective angle. Um, yeah. You know, none of us are going to be perfect about it, but. It did seem that they were calling more, especially in the th- first 35 minutes or so. I thought it evened out at the end. Uh, the first 35 minutes, it was very... UCLA would get called for touch fouls. One in particular was that Cody Riley poke, um, where he was just poking at the ball, which may or may not have been all ball. And it fundamentally doesn't matter because Jaime was getting mugged on the other end. Like, just full-on, just blasted, not getting any calls. And then on the other end, they call Cody Riley for a poke at the ball. Uh, it was uneven. It it wasn't just that they were calling it like a Big East, like an old school 1980s Big East game. They weren't on both ends. They were calling some touch stuff on UCLA that they weren't calling on Michigan State. Uh, that did even out in the end, so it's not a huge gripe. And, you know, they, you know, called some things right for UCLA at the end that they weren't calling earlier in the game. Like, Jaime Hawkins got no, no more bumped by Bingham on that and one that actually tied the game. Than he did several times earlier in the game, but they finally called it there, which was good to see. Um, but I guess my point is they outlasted 
I would say, relatively poor officiating, and certainly a different, even if you don't concede that it was poor, certainly a very different that's, brand of officiating. That the point, that's the point I was going to make. Yeah. They had to make an adjustment because it was a completely different way of officiating than they were used to. Yeah, an absolutely different way of officiating. Um, every loose ball going their way. And they overcame what I think, and this, this is why I, I like to note these things because I think it makes it a more compelling game arc that they made. Their own kind of poor start to the game, their own, you know, not optimum effort at the beginning of the game, their own um, iffy shot selection in the first half. They overcame all of these things that could have set them in such a deep hole that they wouldn't have been able to climb out of it. But they put that all back of their mind and then played, I don't know, the 95% version of themselves for the rest of the, the time. You know, for the last 25 yeah. minutes, they were playing at their optimum level. Um, and that was just, uh, it was just very uh, cool to see. Yeah. And a lot of that game also was dependent on, on Jaime because uh, let's just face it. Like you've called him Mick Cronin's spirit animal. He, he is the poster kid for this program. He's, uh, he's an okay athlete, not a great athlete. Um, he gets the most out of his athleticism on both sides of the court. He plays his ass off. And like, like you said, have you ever seen him really emotional? <laughs> he is like the steadiest player. He doesn't, he doesn't overreact. He doesn't underreact. He doesn't react. He just goes about his business. And no matter if it's a tough situation or he just goes about his business and gets it done calmly and efficiently. And I guess I'm going to transition here to talk what we've been talking about on the forum. Uh, you know, with the discussion about what what makes for uh, a volume shooter, uh, what makes for a guy who's overshooting and a guy who's shooting within the frame of the offense. And Jaime, uh, in that game, epitomized it. I don't know if he forced a shot in that game. I don't think there was any uh, – I've learned this a long time ago, and it was probably coming from Ben Halland. I literally – and I can't stop. Uh, I just – every single shot I say, good shot, bad shot. It's just what I do now, no matter what basketball I'm watching. And sometimes I keep a little tally. Sometimes I just keep a informal tally in my mind. And every – just every shot was good shot, good shot, good shot for Jaime last night. Um that's the difference in in between and I think Johnny Juzang has a chance to get there next year. It's just really in it, on offense, it's improving his shot selection. That's what it's all about. It's it's not how many he takes, it's just the quality of the ones he takes. And now I'm going to leave his defense up to you to discuss, Dave, because you were texting me during the game. <clears throat> um yeah, I mean I thought he was uh so the thing is, I like to judge things relative, um, and I don't think it was one of his worst games defensively. Um, but there were still <clears throat> some obvious moments in transition, especially. I think that's probably the area where he struggles the most as a defender. It's maintaining focus, at, especially after he misses um, a shot on offense and then immediately rotating to a defensive mindset and picking somebody up in transition because often – just because of the nature of the shots he takes, um, particularly from deep, it's going to be a longish rebound, um, which could start a break. 
So you have to be immediately prepared to get into transition and pick up a guy, and he often is not. Um, doesn't really have a good understanding of how to stop ball or whether he should. Um, seems to like get a little bit confused about roles, and that's true of everybody on this team, and I don't mean to single him out. It's just, in particular, it seems like his guys often get open right off that transition opportunity, um, which happened a couple of times um, in the game against Michigan State. Uh, but... I, I don't even think he played poorly. Um, I, I think this discussion is being prompted because uh, uh, our, our man, our man Greg, decided to <laughs> post about Jaime um, yeah. in uh, in a tongue in cheek vein as a chucker. And the fundamental difference, and Greg obviously knows this, is that Jaime isn't chucking. Um, he's taking good quality shots, and I would say, if I was grading it pretty harshly, I would say there were maybe two questionable ones in there. A couple of mid ranges that he probably could have passed up, but for the most part, he's taking shots within the flow of the offense, um, and they're very, very rarely early shot clock unless he's getting a drive to the rim. Um, he doesn't he doesn't force things, um, and I think it's notable that this was probably one of his highest volume games and. It wasn't right in line with his shots per minute average, but one thing you have to contextualize his 20 shots with is that he played 45 minutes. Yeah. He shot the ball once every 2.5 minutes, which is the equivalent of taking, uh, what is that, 16 shots over the course of a game? Yeah. If you played all 40 minutes, and if you play his requisite 34, it's more like 13 or 14 shots a game. So that's right. not that's not egregious chucking. Um, because those and were... and on top of it, the game plan going in was there was a matchup advantage for him. So he got if he didn't have a green light before, he had a real green light. At least that's what Mick Cronin said. Yeah, and I, I, I there think... was a match. So he he was supposed to be the focal point of the offense in that game. Yeah, and I I don't even, and the thing is, if he hadn't hit his first few shots, I don't think he would have been nearly as much. Like if he hadn't been pretty hot, there's no way he would have finished with 20 shots. They fed him more because he was hitting shots, which is again a little bit of a difference there. And I I'm not even trying to criticize Johnny Juzing, but he's going to get his shots regardless of if he's hitting them or not. Um, he's going to take a certain number of shots. He's going to take um, a certain number of threes. He's just going to get his shots. Um, Jaime much more goes with the flow of how he's playing offensively. Um, this game, I thought the design was clear. Um, you know, they've got him in isolation on that, um, whatever his name was, Joey Hauser, whatever that yeah. guy's name is. Yeah. Um, but they got him a couple of times. They got him in the post. Like they were, they were really emphasizing that. But that was that was a handful of possessions. I thought also they were just feeding Jaime because he was hot, um, yeah. and that worked uh, quite a bit as well. Um, but anyway, I, I, the the point is, I mean, he played extremely extremely well. Um, and uh, but next game he might get eight shots um, right. because maybe he's not feeling it as much, or maybe he's emphasizing different things. Um, you know, this game, I thought, you know, he wasn't hitting the glass nearly as much because he was playing more out on the perimeter. Um, but he just impacted the game in, in so many different ways. Um, and I think to your point, when you're talking about, like, shot selection and all that stuff, that's all there for Juzang, too. And all the things yeah. that are true about him as a shooter and as an offensive player would only be improved if he would stop taking jog up to the three-point line and launch a three-pointer with 23 seconds on the shot clock and nobody under the basket. 
painful for me. Those those are the most painful to just, me. Those, th- that's a that's a just bad call it what shot. it is. That's a Jalen Hands shot. Like you don't ever need to take a Jalen Hands shot. It was what made the. Can it you was call what, it also? It's another guy too. But. It's but the thing is, it's not even a Bryce Alford shot because the Bryce Alford shots they were forced. Um, but he wasn't often just walking it up and launching for himself. Like, it wasn't often that, and it wasn't at a huge volume. Jalen Hands would just walk it up, launch the ball, no passes to anybody, no anything. Um, yeah. And that's what it is. It doesn't happen that often, but it happens. And on a team like this, where it's predicated on, like, look, none of these guys are super talented. You've got to move the ball around. I just don't buy that he is so freaky good that this is a better shot than anyone else can get. Because, frankly, it's not. Anybody can take a 25-footer, and there are a lot better three-point shooters right now on this team. And and then it's almost perfectly consistent. Whenever he does that, the other team, no matter who it is, comes back and scores and goes on. Sometimes it, it starts a mini run. Almost exclusively. It's It's just... And whether that is 100% coincidental or whether there's something mental with the team that they get a little deflated when someone took a shot in the first couple of seconds of the shot clock without anyone under the basket, I, I don't know. But it happens too often just to be coincidental. Yeah, and, um, and, and yeah. I do want to make an important point because I think some people bring up, well, he's not the only one taking terrible shots. And that's true. I mean, he isn't. Guards get blamed more because they have control. Um, Cody Riley takes some bad shots, and he looks bad doing it a lot of the time. And sometimes it's forced into a double. Sometimes he's not passing when he should. He often is shuffling his feet. Like, a lot of times, and especially early on in this game, it looks bad. But he doesn't really... I mean, the game plan is forcing the ball to him. Like, Mick Cronin is forcing the ball to him. Like he And he, he's being told, you know, you got to go up and score. Well, um, you're, And he's forcing a six-footer. Yeah, and the thing is, he's forcing from close. You're your odds of getting fouled to go up, like there's a lot that goes into it when you're forcing it down low. When you're forcing perimeter looks, you've got you've just got to be hitting a higher percentage. Yeah, now, when you're that when if you throw it up at six foot, there's a pretty good chance it's going to bounce around and go in. I mean, that's the way it could go in. It, you could get fouled. Yeah. Both of those things are possible, and he's become a credible enough foul shooter that that's not a bad option. Like if he can just yeah. bang around and get fouled. Um, Here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. I, I I want this to turn on a positive note. Johnny Juzang, Jaime Jaquez are both sophomores. They're both young. They're still at, really at the start of their whole learning curve on how to play basketball. There's a lot to look forward to here. These guys are they will undoubtedly get better. Seniors are so much better than sophomores. We we see it across all of college basketball. We've seen it so often in UCLA basketball. It's sophomore uh, seniors are almost can sometimes be unrecognizable compared to the guy we saw playing two years before. Johnny Juzang will get better. I'm I completely confident under under uh, McCronin. He's going to get better. His shot selection will improve. His defense will be more consistently focused. He he will be less frustrating for some fans watching and Jaime is going to even get better to think about those two as a tandem next year and possibly even beyond that. We'll see. 
But just to think about their future is is has to be really exciting that they can be this good while they're sophomores and with some holes in their game when they're they they can be limited in in some spots. There's a lot to look forward to. So that's what I kind of wanted to end in that whole yeah, little well, section. And, yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's a good note, and it's 100 percent true. And I, the thing is, I don't want the criticism to be taken as like I don't know being done with the person as a player. I think it's just, it's important to acknowledge all the different facets of different players, because as we talked about last week, these guys are all, um, I don't know. They're all puzzle pieces. They need to fit together. Right. Um, I think Johnny Juzang at this stage, and this could get a lot better, but he's better as a, as an off piece, like somebody who's going to spot up. He's going to be your, you know, especially in overtime, somebody who can drive and score, um, you know, somebody who can ISO at the end of the game, but you don't necessarily want him taking over all game um, because it can, you know, just because of the shots he can take, the shots he can, um, because of the imperfect shot selection, uh, it can have a stifling effect on the rest of the offense um, because yeah. guys just, you know, it, in that situation where he dribbles it up and takes the 23-footer, maybe he makes it, maybe he doesn't, three or four of the guys aren't touching the ball in that possession. Um, and that's what we're talking about when we say stifling effect, because look, basketball is a game about sharing. It's about all this different, like it's a big psychological game, much more than like football or baseball or any of that crap. You, you really have to, you know, kind of have all of those pieces working together, make sure everyone's touching it and feeling good about themselves because when people are feeling good about themselves, they play better. Did you just hear what you said? I did hear what I said, and I was going with it. Hey, so this is this is the other thing, too. While we're – and you wrote some piece that said, you know, wow, I don't see them even getting past BYU. If they, and uh, that makes all logical sense. What we're seeing here in this tournament – Oh, they're, they're, making, they're making the Final Four, Tracy. Yeah, <laughs> that's the old Dave I know and love. Um, there are maybe uh, – couple of teams a handful that i think are clearly better than everyone else then there's everyone else oh no no and ucla I, yeah you know the point you're I making think ucla yeah. can beat all those other yes. anyone else teams at any night dude oral, night. oral roberts just knocked off ohio state which i thought was going to be a world beater in this tournament anything and can happen like they had some guys that Ohio State couldn't match up against. <laughs> you know that one, that one dude, the, I, the one guard. Oh my god! Yeah, transfer, <laughs> transfer, transfer. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's totally that. And um, UCLA, look, I don't think BYU is a great matchup. Um, they shoot it really well and they defend really well. Um, I think it could be a really, really tough game. But UCLA can absolutely win that game. USC blew them out earlier this year. And UCLA was right there with USC uh, at the end of the year. I mean, obviously, and, trans- and, the transitive and, property of sports never works, but they're not, like, that qualitatively different. I just didn't think it was a good matchup. Let's go with transitive property with our second favorite team in in the tournament right now, and that's the Oregon State Beavers. Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> I mean— UCLA, uh, they, they're the cure. They were the cure. They, they Oregon State played against them, saw what it takes to be a real tough team, and then took those lessons and applied them, and now look where they are. Wow! Did you just watch the Oregon State game? Yeah, dude. They. they... Oh my! I mean, it wasn't even close. It was two. To, it was just completely a, a better team. Uh, for one thing, let's just. I just I every year, and I know Pac-12 fans. You just want the Pac-12 just to go on a tear. 
And just to shut up everyone, please, God, if before before the tournament, if you, I can't even listen to all the talking heads with all the dis, the lack of respect the Pac-12 gets. So just to see Oregon State, Oregon State looked like the five seed. Oh yeah, absolutely looked like the five seed. So I think I think that's, I think UCLA could go on a roll here. They could easily lose to BYU. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe no, they, not a good matchup. Guys, but, I, I, prepare yourselves mentally because BYU, yeah. if they get hot, UCLA could lose and lose big. Like, I don't think they could have. I mean, it would have had to be a real, like, Alford-era dreariness for UCLA to lose big to Michigan State. They could lose big to BYU. Prepare yourselves mentally for that. But UCLA can also beat that team. Like, that yeah. can happen. But the range of possible outcomes is much higher for this one than it was for Michigan State. A couple of points right there, too. After the first half, and everyone on the forum was questioning Mick Cronin's game plan. Because obviously, Ohio State doesn't... Uh, Ohio State. <laughs> Oop, I was, I was slightly a little bit drunk right there. Um, his game plan going in, really simply, was that Michigan State couldn't shoot threes. They shot 32%. It was like 250th in the country. Uh, you are going to make a game plan that's going to... Uh, feature that right you you're going to recognize you're not going to spend a lot of energy trying to extend your defense okay michigan state hit a couple hit a few threes well and they, ended up, they ended up shooting 33 percent or something on the game they missed a bunch in the second half and that was key towards getting those stops yeah so yeah, I, yeah. um that's that's kind of a key, and then I, I think a big takeaway, and then the second takeaway, and I, I don't want this to sound like any kind of moral victory, because this was a victory, but um, I I think that we would be able to, absent a blowout by BYU, whatever the result, if UCLA plays tough in that game, we can walk away from this, from this uh, season with a good feeling about how this team did, given all the setbacks, personnel setbacks, given everything that it had to adapt to, um, and that they played over their heads, that they overachieved yeah, yeah, no, it I, in this season. I, I so I just want to emphasize that takeaway in people's minds. No, I think given given the parameters of everything that happened, they're playing with house money now, um, yeah. even, regardless of the result. They could they could get blown by 20 points against BYU. I mean, Okay, look whatever. at that. Look at you. Um, because, look... All of what we're saying about the team is in the context, and it's not stated all the time, but in the context of, look, they lost two of their, like, in my opinion, two of their best three players this year, um, and, yeah. Chris, and Chris Smith and Jalen Hill. Uh, they're not, like, they're not really doing anything. The fact that they made the tournament after after beating Michigan State, <laughs> they made the tournament. I knew um, you would qualify. But the fact that they did that, okay, that was, that was my, like, you know, okay, Jalen Hill's gone. That was just, all right, make the tournament. Um, and they did that. So that's done. Um, and now whatever they get at this point is gravy, and it's also <laughs> hugely luck-dependent. So I wouldn't even waste a moment of sleep about it because, frankly, they're not winning a national title this year. Um, so it's just a question of, okay, you want them to play well. You want them but to play you, hard. But they're getting the Final Four, you said. Well, they are, but they okay. might not win a national title, right? Gonzaga's pretty good. So if we're doing feel good stuff, so let's uh, we got to think a little bit about about next year then. And um, 
I've been telling everyone, you know, that UCLA is in the market and will be in the market for a transfer post and a transfer point combo guard. Um, there have already been a couple of guys that they've shown interest in. I've I've written about it. Uh, there will be more. If if you haven't been watching the transfer portal, the amount of guys who have been in the transfer portal, I'd say right now there might be seven to eight point guards or combo guards that have already put their name in the transfer portal that UCLA will probably look into uh, that are bigger point guards that can, that what they're looking for in a point guard here is a, a guy who can fill in some of the weaknesses of Tiger Campbell, can match up defensively against other point guards, and then offensively be an outside threat. If you get that together with Tiger Campbell, you've got 40 minutes of a pretty good point guard. So there are probably, a, now once they vet some of these guys, some of them might not be UCLA worthy. They might not be able to qualify academically. They might not be uh, vetted from a character standpoint. Uh, they might, you know, not like UCLA. There might be any number of things, but already, and that's with still... How many teams are left in the tournament? Uh, let's just 60-something teams still left in. There are going to be a lot of guys in the transfer portal. A lot. Um, I think it's, given some of the information I have, and everyone keeps asking me to say it, and you would rather that I didn't, that they are going to be involved with some transfers. Now, how, like I said, how far that gets with each transfer, that's going to depend on the vetting and interest and all of that. But... It's going to be, it's like, it's a whole new era of recruiting. Uh, there are already more guys in the transfer portal in basketball now than they were, I think, than there, I think I read this, than there were after the tournament two years ago. So it's happening. There are going to be a lot of guys. You're going to hear about a lot of guys. So just be patient. Um, the UCLA staff knows what they need and what they're focusing on. You might not hear too much right now while they're still playing, <laughs> but as soon as they stop playing, you probably will. Um, and I just want to think if uh, just put out there, if you can get that, that transfer point guard who can fill in some of the holes of Tiger Campbell and then uh, like what I've been saying, a 10 and eight post player, who can play defense, you plug that into this team, you're, you're filling a lot of holes. I mean, last night they played against Michigan State with Jalen Clark at the five. If you were even considering UCLA at all and you're a post player, you had to be going, wow, <laughs> they kind of need me. And they're still playing well and they're playing like badasses. So there's a lot to be attracted to, I think, the UCLA program to come in as a transfer. And if you plug those two kind of players in and you add Peyton Watson and even Will McClendon, uh, and that's not even talking about what you think is going to happen, and that's Chris Smith returning. There's I, I a think lot that's going to happen. That's Do what I? I said. Yes, I think you think you think that. In the, back, <laughs> in the forefront of your mind, that's what you think. Okay. Do you think that? Well, now it's incepted in me, so I got to think it. <laughs> Look at that, man. I've got power over your frontal lobe. There you go. Um, there's a lot to be 
really, really optimistic about. And not only that you'll have all of these, like you're saying, puzzle pieces and all of this personnel, but they're going to be in this program and they're going to get a dose of what it's like to have to be tough physically and mentally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's very exciting. Um, I think the future of the program, um, is, uh, you know, whatever your feelings about, um, you know, this season, um, I think you should be pretty overall happy with it, but the, the future is very strong. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you touched on it earlier, but like thinking about all those additions or potential additions or just, you know, putting a blank spot and saying that's going to be a point guard. Um, just guy like Jaime being a junior, um, you know, Tiger Campbell being a, what truly a fourth year player, but third year, um, you know, actually playing in the program. Um, there's, uh, these, these things are going, so Mick Cronin, um, I mean, he was a, at Cincinnati, guys developed over four years and became much, much better players as seniors than they were as freshmen. Um, that's going to play out here too. Like these guys are, the guys that you think are maybe not so um, great right now, they're going to get better. Um, I, I strongly believe that um, that's going to be something we, when we look back on this era, hopefully 40 years from now when he retires, um, but <laughs> when he's 95, uh, <laughs> but, but when we uh, think about this, uh, it's, uh, I think that one of the hallmarks is going to be the player development um, from year one yeah. to year four. Um, cause you're already seeing it. Like even, you know, critiques here and there, Jaime's a better player than he was last year. Like his skill level is a lot better. Um, Tiger is a better player than he was last year. Um, these guys have already improved. Cody Riley is a much better player than he was last year. Um, even Jalen Hill, who for whatever reason was getting knocked early. Statistically, he was a better player than he was last year. Um, these guys all kind of uniformly improved and they're all, I would wager going to improve again next year. And that's why also I, I saw the sentiment on the board and like, I'm not going to criticize fans for being fans because whatever we, we all say stupid stuff, but, uh, but a couple of people posted something like, Hey, you need to replace this whole roster. Um, you know, it's a complete rebuild. And I'd be careful of those statements, not because players are reading the boards. Cause honestly they read worse crap than that all the time, but because, I think it's just like not even picking out names, but like think about Jules Bernard. Like think about the beginning of the year last year, Jules Bernard. Um, I, I I think I wrote a couple of times. Damn, he's pretty close to unplayable right now. Like he's forcing everything, drives to nowhere, lost whatever progress he had at the end of his freshman year. This is not good. Um, and now look, he's got some inconsistencies t- still to his game, but he is far and away the most improved player on the team on a team full of guys who have improved. I'm excited to see what Jules Bernard looks like next year. Um, and David Singleton, he's a be- I mean, he hasn't played as much as he did last year. He's a better player per minute this year than he was last year. I'm excited to see what he would look like next year. So yeah. like these things where, and you, you haven't even talked about Jalen Clark or Mac Eddie. No. And th- that's the thing is like, we haven't seen an arc for them really yet. We've seen Jalen, Jalen Clark, Clark. We've seen Jalen Clark go from not playing a lot to playing a lot. Um, but I don't know if this was there for the taking in game one. But the thing with him is 
okay, apply what we've just seen from Jaime, from Cody Riley, from all these dudes who improved from last year to this year. Apply it to that guy. Because that guy's going to be a pro. <laughs> like, that guy's so good already. Has has certain things that are innate that, like, um, just nobody on the team has. Like, it was obvious that Michigan State, uh, I wrote this, um, but I just wanted to underscore it. Um, it was obvious that Michigan State was kind of superior physically to UCLA at every spot for most of that game. And then when Jalen Clark came in, it was obvious that he was superior to basically everyone else on the floor. Like, the yeah. way he grabbed that rebound in overtime was just... That was full grown man stuff. And we've talked about it on the show, but, like, just his positioning on rebounding is just... It's that it's in that uncanny level where he's just well, got that nose for where the ball is going to carry him. And you cannot really teach that. That is taught by, like, years and years of just watching balls bounce off rims and knowing and, where to be. And the other thing about him that, that I get... And Mick actually... referred to it that I don't even know if this this morning or yesterday, but when he's talking about Jalen Clark, about how the AAU coach is telling him early on, you got to take this kid. He's your type of kid. He is right along the same lines as like as Jaime. Um, He just goes about his business. (laughs) I I mean, he doesn't look phased at all when he stepped up to the free throw line. I I mean, he, uh, there was no nervousness. There's nothing. Neither he nor Jaime change expressions during a game. Not at all. And it's just, it's, he's building, he's getting the right play. He'll get the right players that can play for him. Not only is he, Mick Cronin, going to recognize the guys he wants, but those guys are going to recognize, yeah, I want to be in that program. So it's going to be a mutual thing, weeding out process. It's going to keep guys who shouldn't be there away. And it's going to bring in guys like Jalen Clark, who are just, I mean, the guy, the, the kid's just a tough ass. Just the way he handles himself as a freshman right now, it, it's really stunning. So, and, and honestly, Mac Idiot, he was getting into it last night, too. And oh, this I, kid's I, a I loved, senior I mean, in that, high school. That series where he got blocked twice was obviously yeah. not, obviously a learning moment for him. But I love that he just went right back at him. Like, that yeah. was great. And he was talking trash. He was talking some trash. So there's this is during a season, too, when there were a lot of programs that just packed it in, that just gave up. You know, they pitched their tents and, and, and well, they opposite of pitched their tents. You folded the tents. Packed tent, their tents. Folded their tents. Packed their tents. And, and just and left for the season mentally. Um and then UCLA goes through those four games, and then that game. We've been doing this a long time, Dave. There have there haven't been a lot of moments like this where you can see what's happening in a program. It was at the beginning of. I seriously, the only time I wouldn't even say it was Jim Mora. I would only say the only time I felt anything similar was at the beginning of Ben Allen. Um, because I heard so many things from the players and the culture he was building and the type of players he was going to get, you know, and Luke Bamute being that poster, his poster child, just, and Aaron Aflalo. I mean, those are the kind of guys he was going to get. You, that's the kind of, it's the same kind of feeling. There's too many, there's too many things pointing in the right direction here for, for, I think it to really be valid to be too critical right now because there's too much 
upside. And if we're talking about upside and we're talking about the future of UCLA's programs, we got to talk about Martin Jarman. <laughs> Do uh, how I mean, seriously, I don't know if there are other athletic directors around the country who are the kind of athletic director he's already kind of shown that he's been in less than a year at UCLA. Um, I, I'm really unfamiliar, but all I can tell you is that it feels really unfamiliar to have a guy at UCLA like this. Yeah. You just, you double take all the time going, wait, that's, that's, that's UCLA's cool athletic director. What the heck? I mean, you're just kind of double taking over it because he doesn't represent the traditional role of the athletic director that we've been so accustomed to. And I just don't think it's being as Dan Guerrero. I think it's across the board. I just have to think that this is the assumption everyone has about athletic directors. And he is so different. Well, he's comfortable. Um, he's comfortable being highly visible, um, yes. which is something that uh, Dan was not. And a lot of athletic directors are not. They're more of the administrative bureaucratic types, which is just kind of a different type. Um, Jarman is very clearly going to be ambassador of the program type, ambassador yes. of the entire athletic department type. Um, and it's a different it's a different approach. Um, and I think it's going to pay major dividends with the fan base um, like he it's this kind of stuff that it, it's look, it's all soft stuff that at the end of the day isn't going to fundamentally matter when assessing Jarman's career here. It's all going to be about coaching, hiring, firing. That's always what it is. Um but it's the kind of stuff where, you know, when we talk about um, Chip Kelly, and I, again, I don't want to talk about football, but when we talk about Chip wait, Kelly. Wait, and, wait, that's football. I know. But when we talk about him, um, a lot of the things he's done have not all, have have done away with some of the equity he might have had, too. Um, you know, taking away the Bruin walk thing before the games, like just stupid stuff. Closing all these practices that were previously open. I mean, spring practices, um He's left open, but so many of them have been closed. Those kind of things, they're they're minor. They're they're not going to matter at the end of the day in terms of whether he gets hired or, or whether he gets fired or when he gets fired. But they they take away the goodwill. Um, <laughs> yeah. What what Jarmon is doing is adding goodwill. He's constantly doing it with all of these little things, um, giving a fan tickets, publicizing that he gave a fan tickets, posting that little video with the four UCLA seniors who traveled to Indiana for the game. This stuff all builds goodwill. It all makes things okay. Yeah, you know that guy's that guy's a guy I trust. I trust him to do the right thing. You know, it it buys him more benefit of the doubt with the inevitable serious decisions he has to make, with the inevitable big yeah. things that he has to do. Um, and that's why it's it's the right approach for that job. It's the right approach for football coaches. It's the right approach for any of these um, jobs that are. Almost, not quite, but almost equal parts PR and the actual functions of the work. Exactly. And if you actually think about it, he's doing, he's doing, uh, he's, he's approaching the job differently than what everyone's uh, been familiar with. But shouldn't every AD do this? This is the age of social media. This is the age where everything is public. And so much of of what you are is about your image and just being more interactive with the fan base, with the students. That's what this, that's what social, that's what we're in this era. 
Well, it's all if about you're, that. If you're some old stodgy guy and you're operating by the old parameters and rules, you're in a bygone. You're in a bygone time. It, it's this is what everyone should be doing. He's doing it. And I got to give him a lot of credit. But shouldn't every AD? Yeah. Is it just that most ads are fifty and they just can't well, get this? But the thing is, like, I think six. it's important. But I think there's also other ways to do outreach. There's other ways to be visible. There's other ways to be social. What what stands out with Jarmond is it's all authentic. Um, he's clearly an avid social media user. Like he's posting Instagrams of him taking jump shots before games. Like, oh, the, he just thinks he shoots well. You know, that's, that's but that's the thing. He's got he's got the um. How many of those did he take? He's, before he, he I think he's just I think he's just barely not, but he's got that millennial mindset. You know, <laughs> yeah. like he wants yeah. to be visible. Um, yeah. but that's his way of doing it. I do think that part of it is important for all these guys. I don't think it needs to be on social media. Like if you're whatever, um Greg Byrne at Alabama, you can post some tweets, but he's not, I don't know, he's not posting videos of fans with him talking to him. He just that's not his style. <laughs> Uh, but he's yeah. a great AD. There's there's lots of great ADs, and there's different ways of doing it. I think UCLA for a long time had more of an administrative bureaucrat type AD um, who did some you know great things from a budgetary and building standpoint. I don't want to even sit here knocking Dan Guerrero, um, but he was not visible in that way, and I think it harmed him. Um, I See, think it made I think it that made it so that um, he was thought of as kind of this other this outside of well, the fan base, this, this guy who's in a yeah, third when, party almost. When there are mysteries about the program, there's something that, why is that happening? You are more inclined to give, like you said, Martin Jarman the benefit of the doubt because you're more familiar with him. He's a person that you almost feel you're friends with and you're familiar with because he's so, uh, Dan operated in shadows. I, I mean, when did we see Dan Guerrero? A couple, few times a year. I mean, so he, when he, when there was doubt about something, that led to suspicion because he wasn't out in front of the fan base and leading the fan base yeah. like Jarmond is doing. Yeah, and he was. That's the thing, and that's I think the most obvious thing is Jarmond is clearly among the fans. Um, like the way he posts about it and the whole thing. Uh, Dan, um, it, it, I think he was. Like, I think he was an obvious fan of the programs and wanted them to do well. But it wasn't as obvious. It wasn't as apparent. People didn't feel it on a visceral level. Um, and I think they feel that with Jarmond already. So, well, well, the funniest part, too, is when he posts that video of he and uh, the UCLA fan jumping up and down after the game. You, you look at it and you just say, how old is he? Yeah. <laughs> he, looks, he looks just like a fan. He looks like he could be a 30-year-old fan, yeah. which is really – really really refreshing and just creates an energy and a vibe and let's give a little credit to that guy uh oh yeah he shot, uh, shot. ryan ryan jesus is it jesus is it justice Jesus. guesses guesses Jesus. that guy you got it man he really you give him a lot of credit he shot his shot right and he got his tickets that's incredible yeah. love it yeah He's now he's the lucky rabbit's foot. He's he's going on Saturday. You got to keep this guy going. Yeah, no, you're, you're funneling him to every event this year. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, Jarmon's uh, he's nailing a lot of these things. Um, so, and that will, um, or at least my my theory is it'll buy him some when when you know. And let let's talk about the biggest nail decisions is the Jordan brand too. So if we're talking about all of these things coming together for there to be some optimism. Jordan brand kicks in next season also, which we can give Martin Jarman direct uh, credit for. 
that's pretty there are a lot of things going on here that there is there are reasons to be optimistic and I'm not talking about football but perhaps in football also yeah perhaps in football well I'll, I'll, I'll mention something directly football with Jarmon. Um, we didn't I don't think we talked about it on the show but uh, breaking the FCS tradition um, which if you actually like look at it and look ahead it was a net it was an inevitability like it was going to happen at some point just given the dearth of options to actually play uh, in the West Coast who were not like FBS programs uh, or were not um, sorry power five programs just yep. there's not many and you're in this like constant rotation with them it was going to happen doing it in the absolute coolest way possible where it would brook almost no protest from people. You know, like I would say if they had decided they were going to do this against Eastern Washington, there would have been flames. Like a lot of people would have been pretty pissed about it, but did it in a really cool way and approaching it from the angle of, wow, everyone now gets to see those cool HBCU bands at the Rose Bowl. Um, I think there was a lot of, uh, it was obviously great from like a, uh, standpoint of outreach and all that kind of stuff, but I think it was also a very um, smart decision. Uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, twofold. Very smart. I think politically smart on his uh, from his standpoint, but also th- there's a genuine there's a genuine reason to be doing that. And yeah. I mean, UCLA sometimes obviously does some things that you scratch your head on, but. Overall, UCLA represents a lot of great things. And sometimes we don't even see that necessarily in in the athletics. You know, we see it more on the university side where UCLA is leading for this or doing that. And you, you're proud of the university for what it represents. This was a thing that kind of included both of that. And it was something you could, I think, that UCLA alumni can be proud of that was a great move yeah i think so yeah he's he's doing it. he's he's hitting on he he's making some he's hitting the ball let's say yeah. he is not swinging and missing yeah. he's getting on base every time he's going he's he's gone in at bat right now so yeah, it's buying him a lot of goodwill and yeah. it's you know the the obviously the inevitable thing is um that that subject we're not going to talk about today but uh wither wither chip kelly what point all those things are going to play into it and that's going to be the whichever way he goes on that decision is going to be the first major major decision he has to make at UCLA um yeah. and i think that's going to be the source of a lot of initial assessments of him as a um, AD, but he is helping his cause as a man, you know, you're going to trust his judgment um, with everything he's doing at every step of the way so far. And here's the thing too, um, a little bit of luck on his part. He didn't come to UCLA in Chip Kelly's second year. (laughs) Um, He came during Chip Kelly's third season, which was pandemic impacted. And now, right now, we're we're going to be going into Chip Kelly's. It's a make or break year. Uh, it's not. There isn't a lot of gray area that much in the decision. Eight wins or more, he keeps him. Six or six or less, you'd have to think there's a firing going on. And seven so wins they, is hell. And seven wins is hell. And that's a lot more narrow hell than it could have been 
a year like with a real 2020 season that wasn't pandemic impacted or if he came here during Chip Kelly's second season there there the what happened during that second season after the first season left a lot of people wondering like should they pull the trigger now should they well all of those questions are are pretty well defined going into this fourth season yeah so I can see the only the only issue is that seven win season and what he does. And I'm I'm not even advocating either way. I'm just saying that's that's the big thing. That's a pro- like you said, his biggest thing is going to be and the takeaway are his hires, and that's that little scary little window right there. That seven win thing. What do you do at that point? Yeah, and that's that's where he's going to have to get into a lot of holistic. Um, assessments of the program, where it's headed, recruiting, uh, money in, money out, season tickets, all that crap will play into it if they get to seven wins. Um, It's an easier decision on either end if they end up with six or fewer or eight or more, but seven is going to be tough. But um, we've got at least one more day of fun. Possibly more. As you said, this is all gravy, I think, at this point. With the basketball season. And then I'm telling you, it's going to be an exciting offseason. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Because, I mean, they can start doing... Don't they start with, like, the basketball workouts in, like, June? Yeah, very yeah, soon. Yeah, no, they got to get they got to get some dudes in the program soon. <laughs> like, yeah. So that's... Oh, uh, you know, if it's a big-time guy, I'll take them in July or August. Yeah, I'm that's not fine, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Yeah, but, so but, there's that. But they could be and, in by June. Like, this could and, happen and, pretty quickly. Here's the other thing, too. And I... I I know you're going to get mad at me, but I'm going to get people a little bit excited about football. Uh, Spring practice is right around the corner. um, It's going to happen probably within the next week and a half, I'd say it's going to start, from the information I have. It very well is going to be open to the media, unsure at this point, I'm, I'm really hoping. And like in your previews that you've been writing, Dave... Let's just focus on this so I can keep you positive. Have you ever remembered writing a preview about UCLA's offensive line going to spring like you just wrote? No. I was trying to actually piece that together, and obviously my memory is imperfect. Um, I am not a Huffman. Uh, but <laughs> Who is? Uh, Who is? No, I can't remember the offensive line ever recently being in this position. Maybe one of those Mora years where they were returning a bunch, but then they got decimated um heading into the fall um but no i think this is one of the better points for the offensive line in probably the last 15 years and just the fun of being able to get all the information from spring practice because there are a bunch of guys on the in the program we've never seen (laughs) that we've never seen we never saw them last year uh we couldn't go out to practice we couldn't watch practice we we're shut down after three spring practices. So there are guys we literally have not seen practice. And then there's transfers uh, that will be in for spring practice. So that's just, it's exciting. It's exciting to think about just even like the running back position. <laughs> I mean, Britton Brown was a dude last year. I, I watched some, I watched some film, remember, trying to remember him. And wow, he was even better like that I remembered to throw in Zach Charbonnet on that. Wow. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be slightly excited about Dave and just most immediately the transfer portal 
in basketball and in football because it's going to heat up once everyone completes their spring practices. And then football spring practice to literally see some of these guys for the first time and just to be able to go out and like watch the offensive line and say, wow, they've, they've got like, you know, they're at least seven deep, if not more. And that was a pretty good offensive line. That's completely intact and returning. Yeah. That's yep. unusual. How many times did, did we go out to spring practice and just say, where are they going to get, where are they going to, they can't use that walk on. Where are they going to get like even the two deep out of that offensive line? So there you go. There we go. Yes. All right. Well, so, uh, just straight up, you're predicting a win over BYU, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. No, they're beating BYU, and then they're beating Texas. Final four. And then Alabama, uh, and then Michigan. Um, and then, I, I, you know, I'm 50-50 on Gonzaga. Okay, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Okay. You know, they're, they're, real, they're pretty good. Uh, UCLA, obviously, by that, time, by that point, might be rated higher than them. We don't know. It's hard to say, right? After they beat those, you know, four teams by 20 points each, they might be right there. Um, Here's the other thing, too. UCLA fans, you should be rooting for Gonzaga. Why? Um, because, first off, Mark Few's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a mm -hmm. good coach. He, he, built, he built a dominant, one of the best programs in the country at Gonzaga. At Gonzaga. Let's just keep repeating that. So he Because he, it's fun to say. Gonzaga. Gonzaga. And so many people. Why, why are we saying it like Ben Howland? Gonzaga. Because it is Gonzaga. It's not Gonzaga. So he he deserves your respect and from what he did and as a person. And then I'm entirely convinced um, if he wins a national championship, he will be more prone to event to to eventually retire. I, he will keep going on and on and on until he wins the national. Now, maybe he'll want to win two. And, but I think getting that one will be the notch in, in his cap that he thinks that that will be more conducive for him to be able to eventually. Yeah, retire. I, I've got a bad feeling about that Gonzaga program though. That's, that it's been they've been good for too long that they've got that Boise State funk on them from football where no matter who they hire the culture is just built and they're going to be good like yeah I, has Boise State really been as good in yeah football they've been really freaking good they've been really freaking mm. good the entire time Chris Peterson was just the middle of them and he was the best of them but they're always good and that's what's going to happen with Gonzaga they weren't like bad before few got there I mean Dan Monson had a couple good years there um but I think they're going to sustain it because it's been, I mean, it's been like 20 years of this. They're not some upstart anymore. They're like consistently a number one seed. This will be very interesting. They've been see. a one seed in three of the last four held tournaments, and they were absolutely going to be a one seed and maybe the number one overall last year. Yeah. I don't know. After Mark Few leaves, I, I, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see if they can sustain that. I mean, this well, is a I, small I hope, little I mean, Catholic I, I university. It, I hope it completely I hope it completely blows up and yeah. um, falls back into the abyss of mediocrity after a few is gone because nobody needs another top tier West Coast power besides UCLA. Um, but I, I just have my doubts. 
They, they've got yeah. something. They've got a. They've got a. They've got a full program built now. Yeah. <sighs> okay. All right. Well, that's crazy. good. Yeah, it was beautiful. All right. Well, enjoy your uh, your watching out there, everyone. Uh, yes. And uh, we will talk to you again next week, um, previewing the Sweet 16 games. Yep. Everyone stay safe.